All right, there's a phrase. There's a phrase that's used. You have used it before. Maybe you've not said it, but you felt it. When something bad happens, you get bad news. An undesirable situation occurs. The two words are asked, why me? Right? You get it in the mail, and you have been chosen for jury duty. Why, why me? Of all the people, why me? The IRS sends a letter, and you have been selected at random to be audited. Why, why, why me? The boss says, I need someone to work this weekend and to finish all the paperwork, and we're going to choose you. The teacher says, we have a new student, and someone needs to sit next to them and help them get caught up with how things go here, and you were selected. Why, why me of all people? You know, this sort of question is asked in different occasions in the Bible. It's, it's asked in the context of suffering when Job asked of God. He says, have I sinned? What have I done to you, a watcher of men? Why have you set, your, uh, set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Do you hear the question? Why, why me, God? Why are you choosing me, focusing on me? Or it's asked in terms of responsibility. When God is choosing and sending Moses to go to Pharaoh, essentially what he responds is, why me? And Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in uh, the past since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, why me, Lord? There's a lot more better people to choose uh, than, than me. And Esther chapter 4, there are some, some crises some tense situations floating around the events of what's taking place in the midst of this book. But in Esther chapter 4, the woman Esther essentially asks the question in Esther chapter 4 and verse 11. Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned... He has but one law that he may be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. I was weighing on the shoulders of Esther at this time. And her message to those who were trying to plead for her, for her intervention is, why me? Why, why are you looking to me? There's so much at stake and there's so much to risk. Why do you think I am the one to, to step into this role? And the response given to her by her cousin are probably not only the, the most well-known words in this book, but very likely they're some of the most well-known words in the Bible. In verse 13, Mordecai told them to, Esther to, uh, to reply to Esther saying, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another, another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Love that phrase, one of the most well-known passages. There's something to that. What her cousin is saying is there's something about this occasion, Esther, whether you like it, understand it, or agree with it, there's something about this time. There's, there's an opportune moment here. This is an advantageous time, and it could be that you are at the right place at the right time for a right reason to make a right choice. That's what I want to explore for just a couple minutes this morning as we start our morning and, and worship together. I want us to think about what made this such a good time, right? what made this such an advantageous time, why was this such a time for Esther to, to, to act, and how does Esther's times 
relate with our times. There's a lot of similarities between the two, even though we live in completely different worlds and, and, and ages. I want to understand what was about Esther's time, how's it fit with our times, and then what does this have to do with us today? So let's work a few things. You have your notes in front of you if you have the note cards. Here's the first thing. Even in the, midst, in the midst of unjust rulers, it was such a time as this. The book of Esther takes place when the exiles who had been taken away under Babylonian captivity were in the process of returning home to Jerusalem to rebuild their homeland. The Babylonians had been defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and some, by the gracious uh, choice of King Cyrus, was allowed to return home, but then some chose to stay. And so here in the book of Esther, Esther falls right in that gap of Ezra chapter 6 and 7, somewhere around 480 B.C. or so. And it's a time when some, in the midst of Susa, staying in the capital city of the Persians, were under the rule of King Ahasuerus. In Esther chapter 1, back in chapter 1, it says in verse 1, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. 127 provinces. In other words, what the Holy Spirit's trying to get us to see is there is not a more powerful man on the earth than Ahasuerus at this time. He decides, in verse 4, he says, He displayed his riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel of Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. He displayed his majesty for 180 days. You know how long that is? Half a year. Half a year he is displaying his greatness, and then he triumphs it. The grand conclusion is a week-long party. It's described in verse 7. It says, drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders for each official of his household that he should do according to the desire of each person. What's that mean? Drink as much as you want, because it's not going to end. The glass will not get dry. And so you keep drinking as much as you can. And in verse 10 it says, When the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's when events start to unfold. You start to see a man proud of himself, full of his own glory, filling people with wine, with alcohol, which ultimately leads to unwise choices and decisions. Here's a people of God. Specifically, here is a Jewish woman who lives under the reign of unjust, ungodly rulers. Not so uncommon to our times. It's not un unlikely, it's not unusual for us to find ourselves under the authority of some who may not be godly, who may be unjust. In fact, it could be in the next couple months, it may be look a little different for each of us. It could be a teacher that decides, I'm going to squash any ounce of God in these students. And so anyone who claims any kind of faith, I'm going to ridicule and make it seem like the only possible explanation for the existence of the world is Darwin's evolution. Could be. It could be a boss that is full of himself or promoting unjust practices at the workplace or promoting immoral conversations around with the employees. It's even in our land where legislation year after year is being done where rules are made and laws are enforced that are not in concert with God's will. 
whether it be marriage or whether it be about the sanctity of life. There's a reason Paul says that when we bend in prayer, it ought to be also for those who are in such positions of authority. He says, I urge that all entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so even though we may be under leaders, positions, people in authority who are unjust, it doesn't mean that that excludes us from such a time as this. You also see even in times of vain objectifying, because one of the features of the book of Esther, one of the primary emphasis is about beauty. And so in chapter 1, in chapter 1, kind of going back to where we were, when the king is full of his wine, obviously not thinking to himself, he decides to bring in his wife. In verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, To bring in Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs and the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him and that's the reason she is dismissed but here's the thing here's a beautiful wife and the king says I want you to display your beauty for all of my men whatever this meant however immoral it was she said no when in chapter 2 the queen is dismissed the hunt begins and the only thing he's looking for in a wife if you see in chapter 2 it says in verse 2 then the king's attendants who served him said let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. We want someone young. We want someone attractive. We want someone who's going to please the king. When all these women are gathered, and Esther is one of them, the process is described in chapter 2 down in verse 12 when it says, when the turn of each young lady came in to go to King Ahasuerus at the end of her 12 months under regulations for women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices in the cosmetics for, uh, for women, the young lady would go in to the king in this way. A whole year to prepare yourself to get all the, I love the language, the beautification of the woman to, be, to present themselves before the king. And when Esther's turn is taken, down in verse 15 and verse 16, 15 ends by saying, and Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther, in verse 16, was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women. So she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that she, he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. It's all about appearance. That one's worth, that one's success, that one's value is wrapped up in how society sees you. Does that seem common to our times today? Now listen, this applies to young men. It applies to young ladies, but this is a primary, a primarily an issue for our young ladies. That our culture says today, in order for you to feel worthwhile, in order for you to feel empowered, in order for you to feel successful, you have to mirror the image that's presented before you. And here's what happens. For some who buy into this, this vain objectification of how a woman looks, it leads to young women, even our young women, dressing in very modest ways posing provocatively and taking pictures on social media. Here's the thing. Taylor Swift 
may sing some catchy songs, but she is no role model of what it means to be a godly woman, of how a godly woman acts or behaves. My young sisters, you're worth much more than that. Your value is far greater than what our society will portray. And your power is far greater than what it is how you appear, your beauty. The proverb says it this way, as a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. And so often that's all we see. We see the ring. We see what glitters and shines. And what we don't see, it's what's housing that little ring. Right? Can you imagine? Sometimes we're so enamored with the glit and the shine of the things of this world, of what the world says is precious and important, that we don't see true value as God expresses it or the lack therein, which is why the, the, the wonderful woman, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, it says, A charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. For all of us, young men, young women, all of us, our worth is not tied in our beauty. Our worth is not attached to vain things like our wealth or our strength or our intellect. Our worth is declared as something we are going to celebrate and see today by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's our worth. We have a soul, a, a life-bought soul. And that's where our value stands. And so even in times of vain ob objectification, where people are only placing value and vain things, that is an advent advantageous time. For such a time as this. Even continuing on in times of great evil. There's a lot of evil that was taking place in the, in the days of Susa, in the city of Susa at that time. In the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, is sitting by the gate in verse 21. He's sitting by the gate, and Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And so her cousin saved the king. At that time, there were people who were plotting evil, plotting murderous plans, but that's not the only thing. What I love about the book of Esther is that it kind of plays like a movie, and in chapter 3, we get our third scene. In enters this man named Haman. After these events in chapter 3 and verse 1, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathadath, and Agag Agatite and advanced him and had established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And so he promotes this man named Haman, and Haman takes that to his head. He thinks that he is the hottest thing in the city of Susa. And so when he marches through town, he expects every single person to bow down and to worship him. And when one man does not, he loses his mind. Here's the thing. It's amazing how sometimes low self-esteem and great ego are the same thing. He has such low self-esteem that a nameless peasant Mordecai, a Jew, who doesn't bow down, not only enrages him, not only makes him upset, but it says in verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. All right, he's mad. He's angry. Ugh, he didn't bow down. Why didn't he know? I'm, I'm the man. You are to bow down when I'm in your presence. Here's what it leads to in verse 6. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. How angry is he? I don't just want him dead. I want his entire race of people dead. And so down in verse 13, that letters were sent by the couriers to the king's provinces to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to seize and possess as plunder. 
immense evil and wickedness was wrapped in the heart of this man. I don't just want to kill him. I want to eradicate he and all of his people. It was a dark time. And that's not unlike our times today. Because there are people filled with immense evil in our world today. There are some who not only promote, they themselves engage and encourage others to promote the slaughtering of innocent children in our world, in our country today. In our country, we have seen the slaughtering of thousands through guns and schools and movie theaters, thoughtless evil and slaughtering of one another in our country. There are people who will slander and lie and disdain and cheat all for their own gain. It's, it's a lot like what Paul said, that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. And you just see the degradation, the depth and depravity of evil men and evil times. But even in the midst of those times, it can be at such a time as this. Maybe adding on another one. Even in times of standing alone, because Esther in chapter 4, her response when all this is unfolding and her cousin comes and says, look, here's what's happening, here's the plot, here's what's taking place, and this legislation is getting pushed in order to kill all of us, her response is, there is no one else. And the reality was there wasn't. There was no one else in the king's court. There was no one else who had an audience with the king. There was no one else with this knowledge and this opportunity and this place to do anything about it but her. She was the only one. There wasn't another official. There wasn't another messenger. There wasn't another eunuch. There wasn't another princess. She was the only one in a position to do so. And that's sometimes where we stand. I'm the only one in my workplace that cares about God and tries to do what's right. I feel like I'm the only one in this school who's trying to honor God and his laws and to keep my mind pure and to seek things that are pure. I feel like I'm the only one in my peer group. I'm the only one in my friend group. I'm the only one in my neighborhood. I'm the only one in my family who's trying to do what's right, who's trying to honor King Jesus, who's trying to pursue him. Even in those times, it could be such a time as this. And then maybe the last one is that even in a time of God's absence, because one of the most unique things about this book is the fact that God's name is not found once. Not, not once. Not in any conversation. Not in any dialogue. Not in any narrative of passing of the story. His name is not found in this book. It doesn't mean he wasn't there. Obviously, God was present in the midst of this story. But even in times when people aren't speaking about God, talking about God, encouraging each other in the, about God and his will and his word. And we can find those times. The times when instead of encouraging one another in the word of God, we bicker and fight and complain over issues and, and debate over policies. And the times when instead of bending in prayer, we just talk with each other and rant with each other. And the times instead of looking to the word of God for wisdom and for strength, we look to news outlets and social media. There are times even in the midst of all that we see on the screen, in the midst of suffering, that we feel what David felt when he says, where, where are you when I need you the most? Why do you feel far off? Now here's the thing. Two components drive what all this is pointing towards in the midst of the story of Esther. Two components. One of which is seen underneath it all. If we look at this story, and then the other one is as clear and plain as day. Here's the one that's underneath it all. God was at work through this whole story. His name was not mentioned. He is not brought up, and yet God is seen through everything that takes place. Let me just give you a glimpse. And so in the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, in chapter 2, 
It just so happens that out of all the women in the city of, of Susa, Esther is chosen to be queen. It just so happens that Mordecai gives her advice in chapter 2 in verses 19 and 20 to keep her ethnicity as a Jew a secret and not reveal that at that time. It just so happens in the end of chapter 2 that as Mordecai is at the right place at the right time as this murderous plot is unfolding, he hears exactly all of the details to be able to convey that to the king and save his life. It just so happens in chapter 3 that Haman gets so upset he wants to kill all of the Jews and that extrapolates to chapter 5 where he wants to build gallows to hang the man he hates the most. It just so happens in chapter 6 that the king can't sleep one night. Been there before. He didn't watch Netflix. He opened up the scroll and he read about, of all things, what Mordecai had done to save his life. And it just so happens that when Esther breaks all protocol, and to go into the king, where before a queen who went rogue was, ex uh, was excused from the throne, this king extends grace and mercy and listens and everything changes. What do we call that? The working of God. Now, can we do that today? Can we say, well, I, I, see, I see God weaving and working and planning. Sometimes. Sometimes it seems evident. We may believe. We may conclude. It's not always clear. We may think and we may believe, you know, I, I don't see how I could have gotten here had it not been for the Lord. The reality is this. We may not ever know fully if God is the one who is working and intervening and opening and allowing for opportunities, but we do know what he said to his prophet, and that is he works. And if he were to describe and explain the way that he works, we wouldn't even understand it. We couldn't comprehend it. That's what we see from the thousand-foot level of Esther. Had they seen it at that time, they, they probably wouldn't have understood it. How in the world could this young Jewish woman be in the situation and all these moments are weaving perfectly together? That's God. God is at work. And here's the thing. God was at work in the days of Esther and God is at work in your life and in my life. And God is opening doors and God is bringing people and God is providing opportunities just as he did then and that's the other point is that Esther was in a position to make a difference. You can imagine, as she said in Esther 4 and verse 11, why me? Of all people, why me? Because there is so much at stake here. This is an entire people that's at stake, and there's a lot at risk. My life is at risk. And yet, the point being made to her is, could it not be? Couldn't it be that God allowed you to be here at this place and this position for this exact moment? Not just to save her cousin. Not just to save her own people. But to be the one who saves that family line through which the Messiah would come into the world. Can you see that question then? Is it too far-fetched then? Is it too much of a stretch for us to ask? Could I be here? Of all places and all times in this existence, as Acts 17 kind of talks about God who appoints the, the times and the epics of our existence, is it too much of a stretch to say that we could be here for a reason? Like I could be in my family, and this family unit I have with this spouse, with these children, with these grandparents, with these uncles, with these cousins, maybe I'm here at this place and this family for a reason. 
that maybe there is no one else at this moment who's really interested in spiritual things beyond Sunday and Wednesday, but maybe I'm here for that reason. Maybe I'm going to be the one to encourage. I'm going to be the one that excites the family spiritually and ignites the zeal for the Lord. Maybe it's going to be me who helps redirect us in the right direction, and I can be the one who helps encourage my family in their relationship with the, God, with the Lord. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm here in this family for such a reason and such a time. And as I'm getting ready and I'm getting everything packed up and I'm heading off wherever it is in the next week, Maybe I need to think about that. Why am I here? Why am I going to school here? Because my mom told me, yes, that's true. That's where it begins. But maybe there's more to that. Maybe I'm at this university. Maybe I'm at this high school. Maybe I'm homeschooled right now and we're in this co-op. But maybe I'm around these people. Maybe I'm in this one classroom where this new person has been brought in, in into this town. And maybe that's not an accident. Could it be that maybe I'm around these people so that I can show them kindness and I can show them compassion and I can show them someone who not only knows the truth but lives it and speaks it kindly out of love, but they're hearing it. Maybe I'm the one who's going to show them Jesus. Out of all the people, maybe God has me here at this place and with these people now for just this time. We don't want to say this. <laughs> Because tomorrow morning we want to say, oh, such a time as this. But maybe it is, brethren. Maybe the place I'm working at, as much as I felt like it was my own choice, I chose this job, I put in the application, I signed up, I chose this path, yes, yes. But could it be that God uses our own free will and our choices and in the midst of those choices opens up doors saying, since you're going to be here, I'm going to provide an opportunity for you to meet someone who needs me the most. And I'm going to let you be the vehicle through which that happens. I'm going to let them see through you and how you work with integrity. I'm going to let them see you how you handle disappointments and frustrations. I'm going to let them see through you and how you handle all of the awful customers on a Monday morning and all the complaints that come through the voicemail, I'm gonna let them see through you, through your integrity. I mean, have I thought? Have we thought? There are a lot of places we could be. There are a lot of local congregations gathering this Sunday morning, all doing the same thing. The word of God is open and we are praising but I'm here. And yes, that was my choice and your choice. But have you thought? Does it change the way you see this morning? Could it be that in my own choice to be here, perhaps the Lord is saying, I want you there because this is just the right place with just the right people and you are just the right person to make the difference for these people. That maybe you're going to be the one who's going to encourage people who are drifting. Maybe you're going to be the one who's lifting up someone's burdens and helping them survive and thrive spiritually. Maybe you're going to be the one who helps to encourage. You're going to be the one to help to instruct. You're going to be the one who shows them me. Have I wrestled with the implications of Esther chapter 4? 
this young woman who is there and her cousin says, I know you don't want to do this. I know you don't want to be here. But have you thought that maybe you're exactly where God wants you to be? But I chose to be here. I know you did. I did too. But maybe that's exactly where God wants us to be. You know what goes in here, though? Oh, but I'm not the right one, though. <laughs> There's someone a lot better than me. And there are people who are a lot more eloquent, much more, much more wise, much more seasoned. It's all the Moses. I'm just really not the one. There's someone else can do it. And yet there's a time when God looks through his people. He's just running to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Notice, search her squares to see if you can find a man. One who does justice, seeks truth, that I may pardon her. I'm just looking for one. I'm just looking for one person who will do what's right. I want you to run through the streets. I want you to go through my people, and I want you to find one. One person who's going to do what's right. Could it not be that when those doors open, maybe to extend compassion and kindness and mercy and service, the Lord is saying is, I'm looking for one person who will do good to all men, especially to the brother. I'm looking for one. I'm looking for one who will. I'm looking for one person who will help in this moment of need. Or even as Paul said to the brethren at Philippi when he said, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I'm looking for one who has a heart of compassion. I'm looking for one who cares. I'm just looking for one. Because with Esther, there was only one. Now, it's really easy in our minds to think, not me. It's really easy in our minds to say, I, I don't want to be that person, so I have. We're going to end right here, three quick prayers for just this time. And all the times when the lies are running through our minds, not me, not now. I just don't want to be the one. Someone else needs to do this, not me. Lord, you choose someone else. There's three prayers that if we want to be people who accept the times as this. And to step into those opportunities courageously when the Lord opens them, there's three prayers that will help us to be able to do so. Here's number one. Lord, lift my eyes. Lift my eyes. Help me to see. Help me to see you. Help me to see these opportunities. Don't let me be someone who only focuses on myself. Brethren, when we look at ourselves, we, we miss the opportunities that are around us. We fail to see the open doors. We fail to see the opportunities that God are bringing and weaving into our lives. And so, Lord, lift my eyes and help me to see the opportunities to see the needs, to see the ways that you can use me. But then number two, Lord, humble my heart. Break that pride that says, not me, someone else will. Help me to see others and help me to see you as you see others and as you have revealed yourself. Humble me. Because, Lord, the last prayer is send me to serve. Here am I, send me. I, I may not be a Moses. I may not be an Elijah. I may not be a Ricky Jenkins or Joe Fagan. But Lord, if he could use me, if, if I can be useful to help one person, I'm willing. You know I'm able. Here am I. Send me.
Do I have the faith? The faith in God that if he opens a door in my path, that he is able to equip and provide and use me for whatever purposes he may have planned? Do I have the courage to step out into uncomfortable places, to try things that are new and different, realizing that if the Lord opens a door, it means that I am fully able to do everything that he is asking and expecting of me? Do I have the love, the compassion of the Savior, who is willing to allow himself for 30 years to be used for the Father's plan and will, putting themselves in the lives of people? Do I have that compassion? Who knows? Wherever it is, for however long until the Lord returns, this may be the last time some of us see each other for a while. Perhaps wherever it is we are and we find ourselves, we are here for such a time as this. Be a wonderful thing to think and pray about. Thank you for studying so well with me today. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.